Welcome to Mint, the corner of where crypto meets the creator economy. My name is Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. Before we kick off this episode, I wanted to recognize one of the NFT sponsors that's helping make Mint a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3. This episode welcomes Michael Blau, the magician, mentalist, Web3 software creator, and engineering partner at A16Z. In this episode, we break down his alter ego XOR, smart contract illusions that normies fall trapped to in Web3, the art of magic, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Michael Blau, XOR, welcome to Mint. Thank you for being on. What's going on? Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm, I've been very excited to join this uh, podcast, so this is, this is going to be great. I'm thrilled to have you. And uh, for reasons being that we'll kind of like uncover into the conversation, but first things first, I had so much fun preparing for the interview because I've never had a magician or a mentalist on, <laughs> let alone I've never really had a conversation with a, with a magician or a mentalist. So I hope you don't like play any like games on me or, or like fuck <laughs> no, no. me up somehow, but um, – <laughs> Without further ado, I think the best place to start is always with an intro, okay? Michael, who are you? What does the world need to know about you? But more specifically, take it from the point of view of how you got your start into crypto. Sure. Uh, so I'll do like the I'll give a quick of everything. Um, okay. I was born in New York. I moved to Las Vegas when I was five. I, I grew up here uh, throughout most of my younger years. I I'm still young, but most of my younger years, I, I was a magician, which I know we'll probably talk about more later. Um, I studied finance and computer science at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I decided to go work at BlackRock for my first uh, stint at a job and then eventually ended up at A16Z. And that has to do with how I got into crypto. And I primarily got into crypto through my brother. So my brother has been into crypto for many, many, many years. I've always, you know, heard about it, you know, throughout around the house. And, you know, he did a couple projects back in 2017 and, and whatnot. So I've always been, you know, hearing about it, but I think, I really started at the beginning of last year, um, maybe the beginning of two years ago, and end of 2020, 2021. Although, you know what? No, that's a lie. I In the beginning of COVID, when it was DeFi summer, mm. I, I started to learn Solidity a little bit um, because my brother was like, hey, uh, we should build a yield farming bot. And I didn't know what that was. <laughs> I was like, okay. you know, I, I started a little but to be honest, I wouldn't even call myself an expert or anything. I really got into it at the beginning of last year, kind of at the beginning of of NFTs and stuff like that um, through my brother. And, you know, I started to create my own NFTs and, and got into that realm. So that's how I got into crypto. Got and that's like the, the quick version of-, of Quick, of quick. So, yeah. okay, but but you're also like a software developer as well, hence why you kind of like picked up Solidity. So how how long have you been developing software? Have you been programming? Yeah, um, not long, actually. I, I started to learn in my sophomore year of college. I took okay. like a computer science class uh, 101, uh, the reason I took that class, we'll get into later when we talk about mm -hmm. the magic. Um, but uh, yeah, so I just, since maybe like three, four years ago or something like that. Okay. So 
Michael, one thing that's super cool about you is kind of like your your career progression. So you've been a magician and a mentalist for what, like nine years, 10 years, oh, something yeah. like that? Since maybe since I was like 12 and I'm 23 now. So a long how, how, did, how did you get into the world of magic at 12 years old? Yeah. So actually, I was in the world of magic when I was one years oh. old. And, and, the, and the reason is because okay. um, uh, my dad uh, used to be a magician. Uh, way back when he was in his 20s. He's not a magician now, but he used to be a magician and he would do like children's shows and he had like a box of old magic tricks. And when we moved uh, from New York to Las Vegas, I found that box in, in the move at, at a young age and I was always drawn to it, right? So whenever I'd come home from school, I'd go in the garage, I'd go open the box and I would just look at the interesting props and decks of cards and colorful items and all this stuff. And it's always been a part of my life. You know, my, my dad would perform magic at my birthday parties. I would always mm. go shows on the Las Vegas strip. Um, but I think when I was around like in, in middle school, probably like, like 12 years old, I was kind of bitten by the bug. And I was like, I, I really want to learn how to do this stuff. And I, I fell down that rabbit hole pretty, pretty hard, uh, very quickly. And, and, and got into that. So that's how I kind of was introduced to magic. Do you remember the first trick you, you learned? I think so. Well, I think there were, so like there's like the real first trick and then there's like the first trick I would perform to other people. So the first trick- <laughs> so like, like the behind the ear kind of thing? You know? <laughs> it wasn't actually, it's actually kind of a morbid trick. Uh, there's a very, very, very famous illusion that a kid's magician would perform where they invite a, a, a kid on stage and they put like this um, thing around their neck and they basically put a sword through the neck. Okay, mm. so the illusion is called sword through neck. And it's obviously at a kid's birthday party, it's great because all the kids are going crazy, right? They're like, how is this happening? You're putting a sword through my friend's neck. How does this even work? Um, but yeah, so that was actually the first like illusion. It's super simple and, 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 <laughs> and whatnot, but you could Google it online probably. But that was actually the first trick I learned. Um, and then the, the, the first... Um, trick that I learned where I would like perform it to another person. It was a coin trick. Um, mm. However, it, it was not the coin behind the ear trick. Okay. It, it was a trick called scotch and soda is, is the name. Oh, of it. You look it up online. Uh, I, yeah, I know that. I know that trick. I don't know. I've heard of it, but I don't, I don't really remember it, but you know what? Like when my brother had his bar mitzvah, uh, we did it in Israel and uh, we had like one of the most famous uh, magicians in Israel at the time came to perform at his bar mitzvah. And I was like his test dummy. And he did the trick where he put me like in this box and there were three sections to the box and he'd basically move every single section independently and then cut, put a, a sword through it. And then I have to like put my hand through like the bottom hole with like a red handkerchief and be like, I'm still alive. And then he like put it all together and I come out, it's like one piece. And I, I remember <laughs> it was epic. I remember that's like my earliest experience with magic. Uh, but also like you're, you're, you're a mentalist as well. And I'm trying to understand the difference, right? Between being a magician and a mentalist for those who don't know, how do you kind of decipher between the two? Yeah. So I'm about to dive into like, as if I'm talking to magicians, like my major magic theory, right now. you know, All so, right. you know, from like textbook definition, um, a, a magician is someone who does any magical illusion, the impossible, right? It's kind of all encompassing. Whereas mentalism is like a, almost like a subset of that specifically related to mind reading or, you know, mental gymnastics of, of, of some kind, Got you it. know, so that might be, you know, 
guessing a deck, you know, what card you picked or, or reading your mind of what word you're thinking of from a book and, and stuff like that. So, so that's like the difference. It's, it's mind reading versus like maybe more unexplainable impossibilities is what, what magic is. Whereas mind reading is like, you, you create the solution that, you know, the solution, the solution is you're reading my mind. Of course, that's not the case, but you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's um, that being said, the, the magic that I tend to do and the way that I kind of think about it is I, I try not to separate them in, in, in my head. Like when I perform, I perform what I would categorize as mental magic. So it's, it's magic with like a mental mind reading coincidence, like flavor to it. And, and the reason for that is actually kind of interesting. And, and I know, sorry, I'm diving like super deep. No, no, I give it like go um, all the way into it, all the way. <laughs> uh, but but it, 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 it's because a lot of the times when you see a magician, just like you just mentioned, you know, with the big box, is that magic is colorful and it's visual and it's eye-catching. And what I have learned or, or the way that I kind of started to perform myself was that the magic that I do does should not be visual. I don't want it to be visual at all. I, because the visual aspect of magic is distracting. It's misdirection, right? It makes it seem like it's, 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 it's almost too impossible, right? Whereas when you have a little bit of a mental flavor to, to magic that you're performing, all of a sudden the, the, the illusion is more like internal to you as, as the spectator, right? It's not like something mm -hmm. visual that you see that you can just write off as sleight of hand. Right. Like mm. in my mind, if you tell me that I'm good at sleight of hand, I failed you. Right. Because that means that, you know, I did something. You just don't know what I did. Got Whereas it. when you do something that's mental magic, it, it feels a little bit more like kind of in your head, like how the heck do, could you possibly know this? Or how could this coincidence have possibly happened? It's a little bit more like, you know, interesting to me. So I, I tend to stay away from like visual magic tricks that you might see on a stage with colors and, you know, things like that and more related to like, you know, mental magic. Hopefully that makes sense. It's kind of hard yeah, to describe. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because I, I think of uh mind freak. What's his name? Chris, uh, Chris Angel. Like, boy, dude, me and my cousins, we grew up like hardcore watching Chris Angel, like hardcore. And I remember we used to watch, I used to even record the episodes and rewatch them. I was obsessed with them. And that's more of like a traditional magician that does all the theatrics and everything. But what you're referring to is more of these like mind games kind of thing. And if you go on your website, which I'll link in the show notes, you kind of see type, some of the, uh, excuse me, some of the tricks that you kind of play. For example, I saw one where you kind of like you, you, you flush a deck of cards and a card appears in between someone's hand, for example. Right. right? Um, so yeah, I, I find it I find it incredibly fascinating. Specifically, also how you kind of transitioned into now working well, not now, previously working at BlackRock, right? And I'm and I'm trying to think about like okay, being a magician and a mentalist, which is such a creative thing, like incredibly creative, to then going to work at BlackRock, you know. And I'm trying to figure out like how the hell did you make that switch? Who told you to stop being a magician and focus on, I guess, what you love and your creative passion? And then I guess more in the asset management space. And I could be getting it wrong, but how'd you make that switch? It, there's actually a good connection there. It's, it's okay. subtle, but it's there. So we just talked about mental magic, right? And, and a huge component of performing mental magic is psychology. Okay. So it's when I go to an audience member, there are things that I do, not necessarily misdirection, but like things that I'll say or do to psychologically trick somebody right or and or influence somebody to do something right mm -hmm. it seemed like a free choice when it's not a free choice or you know things like that and you know when i was performing magic all i did all day 
was basically like introduce myself to groups of people at like gigs when I'd perform and I would, I don't want to say influence them, but I would use these psychological tricks and it was very human behavior driven, right? To get them to behave certain ways. And it fascinated me. Like, it's amazing. Like how the human mind can be tricked or, 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 you know, presented an illusion. It's, it's, it's amazing. Right. So how does that have anything to do with finance? Well, the, the other side of magic, so there's the psychology, but then there's the method and how it works. And the way that these tricks work oftentimes, and ask any magician, they'll tell you this, the way it works is almost cooler than the trick itself. So like, I know that's sometimes shocking, but like the methods mm. are sometimes so intricate and sometimes they're technical, sometimes they're more clever and psychological. And when I went to school and I started to take some initial finance classes, I started to see how my love for both technically interesting things, but also psychological components fit actually directly into what finance is, right? Like finance is a market where you have behaviors and people behave based off of psychology, but you also have the other side of it where whether you're like in a quant or an asset management role where you're using technical skills to make decisions or to influence other people's decisions. And, and in, in, a, in, a, in a, it seems like a stretch, but like these two passions of mine that I loved about magic kind of directly mapped over to finance, but also computer science, right? And coding mm -hmm. um, you know, algorithms and things like that. So my, my love for these two things did sort of map over, I guess, though, you know, I'll be honest with you, when you go to university, like they kind of, you know, shove in your brain, like the only thing you can do is like go work in finance or, 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 or not. Right. They, they don't like, they don't actively encourage being an artist uh, in, in the purest form, I guess. So, yeah. And at one point you were also, I saw in your experience, you, you worked with David Blaine too. Like yeah. one of the greatest music, uh, musicians, magicians, excuse me, uh, alive in, in our time. What was that like? That was awesome. That, that was, so I, that was in high school. It was my senior year of high school. I remember I, I got called. So one of my mentors in magic is, is a man named Ossie Wind. Uh, in okay. my opinion, he's the best magician in the world. And he at the time uh, is, is like kind of like, He's like the mastermind behind David Blaine. That's like what I use. Oh, okay. And, um, okay. Don't get me wrong. David's amazing. He, he, he is. Like, <laughs> Ossie, Ossie is like one of one of David Blaine's like primary magic consultants. So when when David Blaine was about to do this live touring show, they sort of like needed some some helpers and, you know, designing some of the illusions before the show actually went live. And I got a phone call during class from my, my mentor, Ossie. I, I pick up the phone. It wasn't Ossie. It was a... I, I heard, uh, uh, is this Michael? And it was, of course, David. And I lost my mind, right? Because as a young magician, it's like, David Blaine doesn't just call you. Like, like, that just doesn't happen. Um, so I lost my mind. Then he said, you know, we'd love to, you know, have you and, you know, come help out with, with kind of building parts of the show. And I, of course, jumped at it. And I basically kind of took like two months off of high school to go live in New York for two months and and kind of work work on the team. And it was probably one of the coolest experiences of my life. I mean, just far on. Did he like, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. That's like one of the top performers of our, of our time. Uh, let alone all the viral videos on YouTube that have him just like dead staring people in the yeah, face. Yeah. Like so, so many memories with this guy just pops to mind. And the fact that you got to work with him for two months, setting up his entire experience. I mean, I feel like that's, that's priceless. Like that's absolutely priceless. Yeah. No, no words. Uh, it was, it was a great experience overall, you know? Um, 
I learned what job. what are a few of the takeaways that you got from working with him and like working alongside him and being able to watch him do his day to day? Oh man, a lot. Um, I think, you know, the, the, I think the biggest thing that I learned is, well, there, there are two components. So one is how do you structure a show, right? Mm-hmm. Like David Blaine is primarily, he did shows either, you know, close up or he would do shows on television, right? He has all of his television special specials, um, but this was a live show. This was a live touring show. So, you know, just how do you structure a performance that not only has magic, but also live stunts. Like in the show, he would do like really death-defying things that were not illusions. They, they were real. So how do you like balance that was just crazy, was just crazy to witness. Um, how, do, you know, of, of course, there's like the nitty gritty, like how do you structure illusions? You know, how do you make a trick good moments and pauses, you know, to, to, to maximize the impact of something? Mm-hmm. I think, I think we're like the, the, the key takeaways. Um, Got it. Overall. When you when you got to BlackRock and you spent what I think what was it a year that I that I remember reading correctly or so I was an intern for like three months or so during like yeah. the COVID times, but then I got the job offer to be full time, but I was only full time for four weeks. Is uh, the work life balance as brutal as it's rumored to be? Uh, actually, no. Um, oh. They 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 actually do a pretty good job of like. Well, to be fair, like, I guess I can't really speak to it because I was an intern and we all know that the intern experience is different from full time. Right. And then even when I was full time, it was like my first two weeks were all training. I, I didn't really get into it. So I guess I can't really tell you that it's it. not that bad. So the internship, it. They, they, it was, it was fine, but I, maybe that's Got not it. a good, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah. So now at A16Z and Dreesen Horowitz, the top uh, venture venture capital firm if not one of the top in the in the world um and what is your what is your role over there like what does your day-to-day look like yeah so um i'm an engineering partner on the team and basically i spent half of my time uh doing you know investing as as you expect to do in in venture and the other half of my time doing research and you know working on building out interesting protocols or tools or simulations to you know hopefully contribute to helping our portfolio companies, but also just, you know, contributing open source to the, to the web three ecosystem. Got it. What goes into building a simulation? What does that consist of? Uh, a lot of code. And okay. maybe that's what you can say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess like in, in general, independently of like A16Z in general, as a software developer, right. When you're submitting smart contracts, I guess on testnet, right. When you're building the simulations are on testnet, they're not on mainnet. Right. Right. Yes. So yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm not a developer. So I'm asking this from like a really like dumbed down point of view. Cause I remember even seeing one of your articles in the past. Uh, I think it was titled, it was talking about sleep minting. Right. Yes. And I'm just trying to connect the dots here. So would you run like a test simulation to kind of provably verify that sleep mint is actually like a, like an actual like hack kind of thing. And you can tell I'm, I'm not even using the right words here. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand that world. So like, I'm just trying to understand what does a simulation kind of entail? It's sure. you're just testing something or what, what goes into it? Yeah. So, so essentially in, in this situation for sleep minting, I knew about this certain, I guess you could say like series of events that might occur on the Ethereum blockchain, which would create this idea of sleep minting and sleep minting mm-hmm. is essentially, you know, messing with the provenance of an NFT on chain to make it seem like a famous person or a famous artist actually own this NFT and then now is selling it. Right. And therefore, because they owned it, it's like, Oh wow. You know, it must be, you know, more valuable. 
So how do you actually like fudge the provenance on chain to make it seem like that was the case when in reality, this artist or this famous influencer had never uh, touched the NFT in the first place. And Mm -hmm. this is actually pretty relevant. Like you see this often happen where, you know, NFT attacks where people will sleep mint like thousands of NFTs to the biggest influencers in the space. And what most people will do is they'll watch these big influencers wallets to see what they're trading. And then they'll say, oh, they already bought this and, you know, NFTX or whatever. And now they'll go and mint NFTX and NFTX is really a scam and a rug, right? So mm. um, it's like a way to like create this appearance to attract attention. Um, and the, the way to identify it is by looking for a few specific characteristics on chain. And what I would do in order to like how, how I built this, this, this system was I would go on like a test network like Rinkby mm-hmm. and I would essentially build, I would write a smart contract that had this capability, right? A smart contract that had the ability for somebody to sleep mint an NFT and then claim it back. By the way, to, to, the to kind of the quick description is sleep minting is when I send you an NFT, Adam. So I will send an NFT to your wallet, but the smart contract is written in such a way where I can reclaim it back out of your wallet without your permission, Got right? It. So now if you were to look on the on-chain provenance, what it looks like is that you minted it and then sent it to me. Right. So now if everyone's watching Adam's wallet and everyone wants to buy what Adam's buying, it will appear as if you minted this NFT when in reality you had nothing to do with it. And you may have not even noticed it was in your wallet in the first place. Got Um, it. So anyways, I would build a smart contract that can do this, that can essentially mint an NFT and then reclaim it back on on a test network. And I wrote a a small bot using Forda. So Forda is a decentralized um, threat detection system um, in, in, in the space. And I used their, um, they have like a SDK and API that you can kind of build these bots. So I would basically run, I guess you could say tests and simulations on a test network to basically detect sleep minting as it occurred. And once I kind of got the bot to work and it was working on the test network, we deployed it on the main network. And now the bot is live and running and and basically detecting sleep mints as they occur on mainnet. Um, actually, we just added this week to um, other EVM related chains. So I think we did Polygon and Optimism as well. Got it. Is there any way to simulate like human behavior and traffic online? For example, like what you're explaining right now is very like technical related simulations, right? Where if you run, if you run enough, you could find bugs and inconsistencies and errors, right? Before you publish it on mainnet. But as a creator, I don't have like a test net, right? I don't develop. I'm continuously trying to create more content. I'm trying to create more funnels. I'm trying to capture more emails, trying to get more followers. Like I'm trying to think outside the box and maybe I'm thinking about it incorrectly and let me know, but is there any way to create like some form of simulation for non-technical related things? Am I thinking about this right? You know what yes. I mean? Yeah. So like, these are like, I guess if, if I'm, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it's like an agent based simulation where you have these independent mm-hmm. agents or people who have, who are doing things that are, not necessarily like as simple as detecting a very niche mathematical property on chain. It's more of like, should I mint this NFT or not? Or should I click the button? Or should I subscribe or not? Or do I follow you? And if I follow you, how many images do I like? Right? So these are all very behavioral, you know, actions that basically right. what you would do is you would have like a sim- some sort of simulation where you would create these agents, which make decisions that map to this, right? So do I mint your NFT? Do I follow you? Do I subscribe? Mm. All this stuff. And usually, you know, again, everyone does it differently, but you kind of will assume that an agent like follows maybe some like probability distribution of how like 
do I mint or not? What's the probability of me doing those two things? Right. And then now you kind of like release these agents into the wild and see how they behave, collect the data, and then gain insights from it. Um, unfortunately, though, it is quite, you know, technical. Like you, you know, you do usually need to know how to code. With that said, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, that are that are building pr pretty cool, like, UIs that, that anybody can kind of come into and use to build at least, like, relatively simple simulations for exactly the kind of things that you're describing, you know, NFT right. or, or uh, follows and, and whatnot. Yeah, I guess like taking it even one step further and just, just brainstorming here, if there was any way to simulate like human behavior, like if I could test publish a podcast episode and see what a group of people would like, if they would enjoy it, like just AI people, right? Like AI based people, if they would enjoy it prior to me releasing and then be able to generate feedback to improve the podcast episode prior to kind of submitting it out into the public. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> now, yeah. now, now I'm thinking too, too probably ahead of the game, but I don't well, know. I could probably do something like, like you'd have to like base like model assumptions based on real, real world data first. Right. Like, like we took all your podcasts and we put them through like a model mapping, like how many users are engaged on YouTube or, or, or Spotify at certain times of, of the podcast and basically map like the, the sound waves of the podcast to how many people are listening at that time and basically generate some assumed behavior on listeners and as they come and drop off in in, in a podcast <laughs> by the way i am not making this up magicians do this and i know we're tying back to magic they'll literally record their shows not visually but like just like the audio and then uh -huh. they'll go back and they'll look at like audience reaction and like the amplitude of audience reactions and how much an audience reacted to a certain trick and basically be able to try and mathematically determine what tricks were better than others huh. that's like better than just me feeling it's better you know so like when i tell you this whole sound wave thing and actually listening looking at viewers or reactions at certain sound wavelengths i'm not kidding this is a real thing <laughs> i wonder if that there's like a consumer tool to be able to do that i, I gotta look into it cool. that'd be pretty cool. that would be pretty cool all right we'll do some research afterwards okay michael what i also love about you is that you're a creator, right? Um, and you you actually started off your your journey, I guess, in life, quote unquote, as a creative, and then slowly transitioned more into like the professional institutional realm through BlackRock, A16Z, and whatnot. But you've still kept true to your roots as a creator with like your your somewhat pseudonymous identity online called XOR, right? And I and I remember um, was it about a year ago when you did your your first drop. It was, I think it was on Nifty Gateway. If I'm not mistaken. I remember that, um, particularly because I, I remember seeing your brother, your brother promote it and coming across this like this numerical-ish pixelated type of art that I'd never really seen before. That really caught my attention. How do you find the time between creating and like being a, a DGen software developer and creating for the sake of creating to then kind of like pursuing more of your professional endeavors as you do at A16Z and prior at BlackRock, etc. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, very fortunate to say that my, uh, my, I guess you could say my work life and my DGen life are kind of overlapped because mm -hmm. it's all crypto, right? And I love crypto and I love to think about it all day. And, you know, so I, I basically think about crypto 24 seven. It's just like, what components of crypto do I think about? Uh, and, and so balancing, I usually say I'm, you know, an investor by day, uh, you know, XOR by night. That's like 
kind of the, what, what, what usually happens. Um, I usually work on my personal projects at night where I, you know, do business as usual stuff during the day, but it's all related. It's really just crypto 24 seven. Uh, Got it. Yeah. So when, when you're creating a piece for XOR or even before we even get into to the actual development, how did you come up with the branding around XOR? Like what, what does XOR really mean? I get the X zero, like I get that, right? That's like an Ethereum address, but why, why just leave it with, or so so XOR is a bitwise operation in computer science. What that means is it's a mathematical operation when you're when you're you know working with just like ones and zeros at the very low level of a computer. And the Got reason it. why and there, there are a lot of these bitwise operations, right? So XOR is one, or just or itself is one, and is another. They're logical operations, right? And the what, what's so interesting about XOR though, that's different from all the other ones, is that XOR, I mean, listen, they're all used like this, but specific mm -hmm. XOR plays a critical role in cryptography, okay? A critical role. And it stems all the way back from like the, the most basic like cryptographic um, ciphers um, that exist. I think that the, the first one is called the one-time pad. It's like a very basic cipher you, you will learn in like introduction to cryptography. And literally the encryption mechanism of encrypting like a piece of data is applying the XOR operation to it. Okay, that's like Got the it. so so it, when I think about crypto and I'm like if I'm gonna be a crypto artist, what is a, a a word or a name that I can use that is very native to the space? XOR was like it. I don't know. I, I had like a few options, but like XOR just it just stuck for me. Got so uh, that's that's where XOR comes from. So can you talk to me more about the the style of art, like the theme of art in which you use these these numbers to kind of display images and faces, and why you ended up going with that direction and even beyond that, the creative process of actually generating a single piece, like what does that entail? For sure. So uh, yeah, I'll start at the high level. So basically the art that I usually create is ASCII art. Um, ASCII is, you know, an, an American standard for mapping, basically also ones and zeros to letters. Okay. Um, and it's creating images based off of characters. So A to Z, one, zero, period, question mark, exclamation point. So using all of these, you know, characters on a keyboard to create images. And it's very um, relevant in the like hacker community, right? So oftentimes when you, if you've ever seen like in the movies, like people are typing on this like terminal command line and it looks like super complicated and then it will like print out stuff. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with new software as a software developer, you know, when you run the software for the first time, the, the software will like print their logo in ASCII, um, you know, in, mm. in this like, ASCII art, right? So it's like, it's like this kind of like, low level thing in, 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 you know, in the hacker community, I guess. Um, so that was like the style. And I had that, honestly, it, my friend sent me this really crazy thing where you can like pipe into this server and it would then proceed to show you the entire Star Wars movie in ASCII. So like all the images, all the characters were completely composed of ones, zeros, and letters. Got it. Moving yeah. around the screen, right? So I saw this, I'm like, wow, like this is so cool. So, you know, for me, that was like the style. And then the other side of it was, instead of just like, you know, creating images with like ones and zeros, what if those ones and zeros and letters actually meant something, right? Like they, they had a real meaning. They weren't just like random. Like if you go online to like an ASCII generator and like drag and drop an image, it will like spit out, you know, an ASCII art or an ASCII version mm -hmm. of your image. Um, but I, I didn't like that. I, I wanted to do it where it meant something. And the, the first piece I ever created 
to kind of experiment with, with this idea was called Merkle. And it's basically a technical or a visual representation of a Merkle tree. And a, a Merkle tree is a kind of a, a, a primitive, a cryptographic primitive used a lot, like heavily in the Ethereum ecosystem and, and blockchain in general. And basically, when if you were to go look at this image, you see this image of a tree, but within the roots of the tree, uh, numbers are moving. But those numbers are actually transaction hashes from a very specific block on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's real blockchain mm. data. And the reason why they're transaction hashes is because the way a Merkle tree works is, I, you know, it's kind of outside the scope of the of this conversation. But basically, when you have like a lot of transactions, and each transaction has a transaction hash, for people who are in this ecosystem, you are probably very familiar with that. Basically, it's a way of taking all of those individual, oops, sorry, taking all of those individual transaction hashes and combining them into one, you know, root hash, mm. which is known as like, which contributes to a block hash. So if you ever go to like a block on Etherscan and you see like right. a block hash, part of that calculation of that comes from the individual transactions. It's kind of like a tree, right? You have all these individual transactions right. and get sucked up to this root hash. So I wanted to visually create that, but I wanted to use real data. And, and that was Merkle tree. So that was the first example of how I, you know, changed these characters to, to mean something. And then after that, it kind of shifted more toward code. So now I would do, you know, visual representations of some Ethereum tech and, but use the actual code, like the actual solidity code of that technology within the art. And the best example of that is I have one called 721. It just has the letters NFT, but the letters NFT are composed of the actual ERC 721 standard implementation. It's like the actual solidity code is with running through the art itself. So that's why every time I would get inspired to create like a new piece, it was really a result of me just learning something new in the ecosystem. So I'd learn some new technology and then I would just take that technology and create a visual representation of it um, through ASCII and code. And the reason why I did that was because I wanted, I think, you know, at least at the, at the beginning of the time when NFTs were starting, like I felt like a lot of people really didn't quite understand how NFTs worked under the hood or different components of it. Like it was kind of like this high level concept, like image mm -hmm. on the blockchain. What does that even mean? And this was like by me creating these images and 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 re releasing them to the world, and people would would read the short descriptions of each art, uh, piece of art. It was basically a way for me to sort of like educate or, or like share some knowledge in a succinct and simple to understand way of how a critical technology actually works under the hood. And it's important to me because like we use this stuff every day. Like believe it or not, XOR is used every time you sign a transaction, sort of, right? Like it's just like, these are things that you're, you, you use every day, but you're just not necessarily familiar with how they work or that they're even there. And that's the point of, 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 of me creating in this space is kind of peeling back the, the, you know, the layers and kind of Got diving it. in. You know, it's interesting coming from your, your magician background, you've always performed for an audience, right? And now in Web3, you kind of have like your virtual audience, your collectors, right? And one thing that I kind of talk a lot about on the podcast is understanding the difference between like a Web2 fan and like a traditional fan versus more of like a Web3 native fan. How do you think about that? Because you, you've managed to rack in thousands of collectors around this art, which I find fascinating. And even more so, you've performed for a ton of people as well, right? How do you, how do you kind of think about the two? Yeah, you know, I think like the the honest answer is you kind of have both. It's 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 kind of the same. Like you have 
uh, your super fans and then you have your haters, right? In magic, right. it's obvious, right? Like your super fans are going to come see every show and they love everything you do. And the haters are the one that they don't really care about you. They just want to know how the trick works or they're going to let you know how they think the trick works and embarrass you in front of the other people and reveal the secret if they know it and stuff like that, right? So like that's mm -hmm. like that world, you know? And, and like the same thing maps over to crypto. I think the difference though is that, and it's, it's very real, all the things that people talk about is when I would create magic online or on Instagram, or even in live shows, I had like zero connection to those people after the fact. Like, sure, they could like DM me on Instagram or something. But like, other than that, I had no connection that they saw my show. Um, whereas in crypto, when you give someone a token, all of a sudden the creator does have ownership over their over their community and their fans. And now you get to do these really interesting things, like, you know, create a Discord that's token gated, where you can like talk with your friends and learn from them and, and kind of create this like little ecosystem and community which is really cool that just doesn't exist. It just didn't exist in, in the magic mm -hmm. world. Um, I think what's what's different also about, about crypto communities and fans in general is that they can meet each other, right? So like in magic, if I have a magic fan like in New York or a magic fan in San Francisco, who they, they both love the tricks that I'm performing. They don't know who, they, who each other are they, and they'll probably never meet unless they're both mm -hmm. sitting next to each other at a future show. Whereas like in crypto, if I have two collectors of mine, they can meet very easily and then they can... I don't know who knows maybe whether that's create a derivative project or just like you know start their own thing and just like meeting through their common love of 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 my artwork that's just a super powerful thing that just didn't exist before so that's yeah. how i see the differences yeah what's up guys adam levy here sorry for the quick pause but i wanted to recognize a couple of our nft sponsors who are helping make this episode a reality they are coinvise and mint songs First up, on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. Next up, we have MintSongs, who is home to over 1,200 music artists in Web3. Check out the MintSongs marketplace to support collect and connect with artists creating web3 communities around their music via nfts in june 2022 about next month mint songs will be launching their much anticipated v2 marketplace on ethereum which aims to make web3 even more accessible to music artists follow along on twitter at mint songs or check out mintsongs.com to learn more all right back to the episode you know one thing that also is is interesting you also in the a16z report um, the various statistics on the creator economy in Web3 were quite fascinating, the numbers that were presented. Um, and you're seeing a lot of like music artists sort of like break wind into the space, issuing music NFTs, building a band of collectors, and kind of finding creative liberation in otherwise an industry that wouldn't allow them to kind of see that financial success. For example, Spotify data and like the streaming data are just royalties. Paper stream models don't really represent in I guess, benefit every other artist out there, right? There's some like your brother who have done exceptionally well. And there's a, there's a handful that have done well, but there's even a bigger tale of artists and creators that don't really benefit from these traditional systems. And you talk about like ownership, right? Owning your audience base, building it, being able to build a community. Part of ownership comes with the data that you're able to own, quote unquote, right? Or at least the data that lives transparently online. And with your software background, and you, you seem very like data focused and very, data centric, what sort of data points would be beneficial for a creator if they were to build a band of collectors online? 
Like how could they use blockchain data as a way to optimize a community and otherwise a world where they wouldn't necessarily have access to more specific centralized data, such as that that Spotify presents or Apple Music presents or Facebook presents, et cetera. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, the idea here is that when you have collectors on on a blockchain and you and you can know, for example, like if you release an NFT, you can go to that NFT smart contract and query all of the individual addresses that own one of your tokens, right? And just having that alone, you cannot do in other places. Now, sure, you know, there are Web2 platforms that maybe let you download an email list. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like what happens if email disappears one day? I don't know. Like when you know someone's address, you can take that anywhere. You could take that to your own website. You can take that to another website, you know, and, and, it, and it becomes a token gating game, right? And that's where, you know, when I think about how do creators leverage Web3, and I, I, I think about this myself, like how do I distill it down to like the simplest possible primitive? And it, it, it as of right now, it kind of has to do with like token gating. Like assuming that you're not technical at all and you just want to use NFTs to, you know, build your community. Well, once you have these NFTs on the blockchain, you know, you have to now validate that somebody owns that token. Right. And after that, it's whatever you want. Right. So in my in my case, right, when like what do I do? Well, when someone owns one of my tokens and they like come into my Discord or my website and they connect their wallet and see that they do indeed actually own one of my tokens, right? Now I give them access to all of this educational content content that I'm creating to kind of help them become more technic technical in the crypto and web mm. ecosystem, right? That's like sort of like what I do. But in reality, you could do something where you know it's token gated. Someone will come in, connect their wallet. That you'll see they own your token and you know maybe they get to listen to an unreleased song or get to you know really listen to a blog or whatever that might be and it's just using this idea that you can token gate something and and but you can move that token gating from platform to platform so for example you can have it on discord or you could have it on your website mm -hmm. or have it in the link tree in your twitter bio right you do that now which is crazy right so you can token you can take your fans across anywhere Whereas like imagine, for example, like I'll use like, like if, if Web3, like Discord, let's use Discord. Like let's say the blockchain was built into Discord and therefore I, you know, Nightmare. got access to my community in Discord. That'd be amazing. But now if I want to go build a website that, you know, has, gives them some other access to whatever it, ever it is that I want to do. Well, I can't bring my fans. Yeah. You're shit out of luck. It's stuck in Discord, right? I, I, I can't. There's nothing I can do. It's it's the same problem creators face when they go and build a new audience on a new platform. For example, a lot of the the Instagram artists or creators that did exceptionally well on Instagram built massive followings, then slowly transitioned to TikTok and didn't maybe necessarily see the same success. And there was a now they have like the TikTok creators, right? Versus which a lot of the ethos around like this Web three social environment is like you can take your followers anywhere. The platform is the play, and you own your audience. So. If a new platform pops up and you create an account and a lot of those existing users who own your collectibles join that platform, essentially you'd be able to kind of like rejuvenate that following as you otherwise would have had on the other platform kind of thing. You know, exactly. I, another another interesting concept that just diving more into the data that I, I find quite interesting. So for me specifically, every single season or nearly every single season started on season two, I issue free NFTs to my to my listeners. And basically, if you listen, you have the optionality to claim a participation NFT, right? And I've issued, I think, over, I think, literally like 8,000, a little bit over 8,000 free NFTs. Wow. And 
now I'm trying to think, okay, what do I do from there? Right. So back to your, your email analogy, because I'm also building like a newsletter list, right? For those who don't understand the concept, imagine like, okay, you have their email address, but imagine if you were able to see their entire inbox and you're able to get like an entire analysis and deep dive as to what they like, where they went, what they've like communicated, et cetera. That's like what the address represents, right? Just to right. kind of give more context. And I'm thinking from my point of view, Michael, I'm trying to think about like, okay, how many of my, my collectors also hold a board eight? How many of them have at least 0.1 ETH in their wallet? Uh, what other pull-ups have they collected, which I can kind of maybe tell if they're average conference, avid conference goers and all, all these interesting data points. And I can start building like a profile around these wallets themselves, right? In a very, I guess, like ethical, non, non, uh, non-aggressive manner, right? Are you, are you thinking about it the same way? Have you done that with XOR? Walk me through that a little bit more because you have more, I feel like you have more experience with this as a technical person than I do. Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll kind of explain what I've done with XOR. Um, okay. And my like, little uh, experiment and then how I feel about this concept in general, because I think it's the coolest thing ever. Um, so in, 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 in my like XOR community, it's all about education. And, and I really, I stay by that mission, right? We, we do these like weekly or every two weeks, we do these quests. These are on-chain quests or like they're on a test network where people can go and experiment with smart contracts, kind of really getting in the weeds. They're not like, it's not like education, like, oh, here's how to use Uniswap. It's like education, like let's actually go read an NFT smart contract and determine if it's sleep minting on Etherscan because like we're all looking at Etherscan every day, at least I'd, I'd assume. Right. So like, how do you make sense of all this crazy data that you're getting thrown at, right? So technical education is what I focus on. And as people complete these quests and do this stuff on chain, what's really cool is People are are doing this stuff on a test network, so it's totally free to participate. Which is cool. I, I haven't heard about. I mean, obviously, a test net exists, but creating an entire experience on a test net, I've never heard. Like you, you always think about people creating these experiences where you're burning gas and it costs the user something, but it's actually so smart to do it yeah, on a test net. Anyway, yeah. Anyways, continue. And, and, and by the way, the reason is is really simple. It's because you know when when something is EVM compatible, like Rank B, which is the Rank B test net that I use, is more or less like the same exact code base and cryptography as Ethereum. So your like address and private key on Ethereum is the exact same as it is on the Rinkby test network. Right. So basically if, if, if I were to see who is participating on a test network for free, I can then retroactively go back and airdrop them something on the main network Mainnet. Yeah. based on their address that they used on mm-hmm. test network. Smart. And now they, what's really cool about this is now I get to, I actually get to do risky things. I get to experiment with new contract ideas, smart contracts, and and have you know my collectors who are a part of the community do interesting things. And if it's if there's a bug, it's not a big deal because it's on a test network. You're not losing money. It's 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 all like free, right? However, if if you're successful in these quests and you complete them, now what I do is I go airdrop them a token on Polygon. Okay. However, this token is non-transferable. It's a non-transferable token. So it's kind of like a pawn. Although pops yeah. are transferable, but like it's a non-transferable pop. That's and what I do for for the podcast NFTs too, by the way. But continue. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Transferable. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so so, why is this so important? Well, because when you complete a quest, what that shows me or what that should show somebody else is that you learn you learn something, you spent hours trying to do something, and then you were successful in doing it. Right. This is something that you should not be able to give to another human, right? Like you can't give what you've learned, right? It's not like I can get a degree in computer science, 
or you know biology and then just i sell you my degree and like magic right right? like like that's not a thing right so so these are not transferable because people who earn them they're 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 not knowledge is not transferable in that sense right yeah or what you've learned is not transferable so that's how i sort of experimented and now what's really cool is what i what i then do is now when you come in my discord i when you connect your wallet i can see who's completed what quests right and then group them together so like if you completed this first quest you guys can be in a group chat and hang out or if you completed this quest you can be in a group chat and hang out right or you know like i've used it for things like you know um uh, a, a buddy of mine um nas um also works at a16z you know he has a project coming out called rebels and and was gracious enough to to give our community some whitelist spots and you know what i did was when i gave out these whitelist spots i was able to give them to people who completed the quests because mm. those were demonst- like they demonstrated being active in the community um, for the sake of learning and, and they, they love the mission. Right. And, and those are the people who, who should be rewarded. Right. So, you know, from that side of things, that's how I've been using it. Now, how this other side that you're talking about is creating a decentralized profile with non-transferable tokens or even, you know, transferable tokens to me, that's where I believe this space is going to be in the next year or so, because the reality is right now, when you think about NFTs, like, there's a lot of speculative nature going on, right? Like we, we can't pretend like it's not all speculative, right? And if we're thinking about a world where web three is really the next internet, right? Like web two is not speculative. Like we don't go on Gmail and say, thanks for sending my email, but like, what's the utility Gmail? Like, what are you, what are you giving me, right? Like we don't do that, right? Like we use it because it's a great tool and it's I like- I mean, I do that. I don't know about you. <laughs> Uh, no, but like, it's like, it's a great, it's a great tool. Right. And like, if that's how web three is going to be, cause that's how we, we hope it will be as people are just using it every day. What does that look like? Well, I think one version of that is this idea that when you go, you own your own tokens in your wallet. And when you go from website to website or, you know, decentralized application to smart contract or whatever it is that you're doing in the ecosystem, that website could ingest that data and then display things to you based on that data. Right. So, and you know, in your case, you just might be using that data to just get an idea of who your audience is. Right. But, you know, maybe a decentralized social media platform might say, well, you know what, if you connect your wallet and you own an ape, I'm going to show you, you know, maybe all the other apes, all the other Mm -hmm. people connected and show their apes and show what their threads look like. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you can even actually be more granular than that and say, you know, like when I think about decentralized social media, like people talk about like how the algorithm shows your Twitter thread. Uh, right. Right. And like, what happens if I had an NFT that basically stored my settings or preferences for the metaverse? Light mode, dark mode, my favorite color, my PFP, all these things. And when I go connect to a website, it just knows, right? It can look at my wallet and be like, okay, we know you like dark mode. So we're going to display the website to you in dark mode. If you like to see, you know, oh. your Twitter thread in order and not based on an algorithm, well, the website will know to display you a Twitter thread in your order, right? So you're really taking with you your your credentials wow. and all this stuff. And to me, that's like so incredibly powerful, right? Like that that's what, in my opinion, Web3 and crypto is really all about. And I don't think we've seen that yet, right? That's what's coming. That's the theory that people are talking about, but it's not quite implemented yet. The current, the current version that exists right now that's closest is like ENS, right? Like you go to your website, and like most like JavaScript libraries that people use to build these websites have like, they understand that when a wallet is connected to a website, we're going to see if they have an ENS domain. 
And if they do, we're going to display, you know, XOR.eth in the top corner. It just knows mm -hmm. to do that, right? So, like, imagine that on an even more complicated scale. So, that's my, like, rant. Mind blown. So, yeah, so, that's so right. interesting. It's really cool. That's where I think so, it's going. So, I haven't, I haven't thought about it like that. Um, the fact that I would be able to connect my wallet and then I have, like, predetermined settings as kind of preferenced by my taste that's that's kind of like coded into my wallet through an nft right and every time i go to these social platforms or any website for that matter i can get a tailored experience to me personally as a user it's fascinating and powerful as hell like incredibly powerful and i guess the point that i was thinking about it from is there's so much data on chain that's so so accessible and a lot of collector or creators are they're building they're able to build at least profiles around their collectors and be able to see and get, I guess, more, get deeper insights into, into how, like, what future drops should look and feel like, right? For example, something that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, I'd argue, is, for example, let's say for everybody that's collecting one of my NFTs, if I want to do some type of, like, pay type of, I don't know, drop in the future, I can kind of see my closest supporters will obviously get like the whitelist spot, no doubt about it, right? But even more, more than that, I would want to create a custom minting experience for my existing audience. So I would want to know what is the average like wallet hold in terms of net worth, right? I don't want to be charging one ETH for something if I, if I know my audience can't afford one ETH, for example, let alone if I know a lot of them have FWB, maybe I should be doing curated experiences with FWB because our audiences overlap and so on and so on and so forth. And even more than that, which I don't think we've kind of like scratched the surface is, okay, there's a lot of information out there. And there's an argument that says, even if you have all that information, you don't know what to do with it. So having like some type of like AI generated insights, I'll be able to tell you, here's what you can do because X, Y, and Z kind of like fit this, this type of sentiment or whatever the statement. So shows you how early we are, I guess, yeah, in, exactly. into all, all of these things. You know, one thing I want to, I want to pivot to and kind of go back to this topic of magic and being being a mu musician is where do you see the world of magic and web3 kind of overlapping and it's such a general question but i i'm thinking about it from the point of view michael it's like i feel like there's a world where you you can mix your love for magic and software development and more of like an, an illusion based experience and i could be speaking out of my ass here but i feel like there's 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 something to experiment between these two mediums that hasn't been done before great Great topic. So actually, uh, this is, I, I don't know if you remember, I said in the beginning why I took computer science in the first place. It was right. Magic, right? And, and everything that I learned of how to code was how do I build technological magic tricks? How do I leverage technology to, to, to create magic illusions? And, you know, that, you know, is a, across a variety of, of applications and spectrums. I actually released one application on the app store. It's free. You can go download it. It's called AR Psychic. And it's basically like an iPhone app that is, is augmented reality and you, you show it to a spectator and it like, you know, it has these spirals that spin and then a little thought bubble that comes out of their head and it tells them what number they're thinking of, right? And, and you can download the app and go perform it, right? So like, that's what I mean by like technological illusions. Um, now, how does it relate to blockchain specifically? I think in two ways. So one is there's this, there's this, there's this quote in magic and I am going to butcher it right now. Um, <laughs> it, it it's actually not a quote from Magic. It's a quote by I think I think it's Arthur C. Clarke, and it's like any sufficiently advanced technology is no different from Magic. Um, mm. something, something like that. I'm butchering the quote. Okay. Famous quote. Um, but it's something that this idea that 
what is considered, you know, impressive a hundred years ago is no longer considered impressive today. Right. And the reason right. for that is because technology changes. Right. So what, if I were to do it, a, there are some tricks that I could do to you 10 years ago, that even today you'd be like, Oh, I know exactly how that works. Right. So why is this interesting? Well, there is like a, a whole side of magic now where like, I'll do tricks with your iPhone. Like I will take your phone and you'll go on Instagram, Facebook, phone, cell phone, call, passcode, mm-hmm. email, whatever. And I will do magic illusions using your iPhone as a component of the trick, right? Not necessarily where like the actual like code is involved, but just using this prop in an illusion. And the reason why that's interesting is because people, you know, our age and our generation, we understand how an iPhone works, right? So if I could show you something amazing with an iPhone, it's all, almost more impressive to you than if I just did a card trick, right? Because an iPhone is so ingrained in our lives. So how can I create an illusion that uses the blockchain right now? I don't think we're at a stage where like the average audience that I perform to is going to understand like what a smart contract is. So maybe it's not there yet, but one day you might see, you know, magicians using NFTs in a magic trick or, or the blockchain in a magic trick for whatever reason. Like, I don't know, you know, I could predict what you're thinking of. And instead of me just like opening up an envelope in my pocket that has what you're thinking of written on it, I could say, go look in your wallet and you go to your wallet address on the blockchain and there's an NFT and that NFT shows what you're thinking of. Right. Which is kind of interesting. Right. Um, so that's so, yeah. so cool. Wait a uh, minute. I so did it already. Uh, you did it, it already. Yeah. Like, tr- traditional magic is either one to one, one to a few, or one to many. And yeah. most of the time, everybody experiences the same thing. Either you're like a you're a, a pros. Um, what's the word? You're either watching from the sidelines, right, or you're kind of like experiencing it one to one. But now when we're talking about data profiles, right, and using these NFTs to kind of build an individual preference sheet of every single wallet. You could technically create custom illusions per wallet, right? Like per user. So everybody experiences your craft in their own unique way, shape and form, which is like, like like we have yet to see that on television, for example, hit the main stage. Are you going to be the person who does it? Yes. That's going to be me. That's going to be me. Yes. I will say the alpha is I have, I I have done one magic illusion before. Um, Okay. It does an NFT. It's called Hardeen. It's like an NFT that reads your mind. It's like a simple form of this. Uh, I have a new, I have another one I'm working on that is going to come out soon, I think. Um, but yes, I am working on it. I, I think about this a lot and, and I, I want to be the person to do it because I, I like you said, I want to combine both worlds. Um, huh. And that's super, it's, it's an interesting problem and it's really exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to be the person. <laughs> there's nothing like that out there. I can tell you right now. I think you and I both know there's nothing like that. There's no experience that really, yeah, I'm, I'm like trying to think like, I'm trying to experience the same aha wow factor that comes from seeing and experiencing a magic trick. And then getting that on a more personalized level in Web3. It just, it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Um, one day. Yeah, one, one day. day. We'll, see. we'll see what happens. Wow. Okay, so what what's up next for XOR? Like, what, what's going on in that community? What do you have planned for for all the holders? Like, what, what, what can we expect next? Yeah, for sure. So, actually, I just did something about a week ago, which is oh, okay. kind of, like, been my dream to do in crypto since I started in NFTs. And I, of course built the community up into to a point where I was able to do it. And it was, you know, I have this fascination with NFTs that are composable and fully on chain. Okay. Now, now what do I mean by that? So like you can, a, another smart contract on Ethereum can determine very easily if you own a board ape or not, mm-hmm. they, can, they can know that very easily. What they can't do is they can't tell you if your board ape has gold fur, right? Now, why does this matter? Well, 
the more granular data that you can get from from an from an on-chain you know asset in this case an nft the more interesting things that you can do with it right so mm -hmm. i always wanted to create a composable nft which is what i did in my recent um project called mev army so even though the mev army images are uh stored on arweave the traits of each image are indeed on chain and they're fully composable and people can query them and smart contracts can plug into them um but like what do you do with this well the this new idea that i had was I want people to come to a smart contract and basically when they when they, when when they're at when the when the smart contract sees their wallet and it sees what tokens they own of, of this Mev Army NFT, it's gonna take the traits of that NFT, in my case, the Legion trait. Okay, that it's like one of the traits, and I'm gonna mint you another NFT based off of that trait. Okay. And this NFT is a, it's a in this case, it's it's a Twitter, a Twitter banner that's like a visual logo for a Legion. Um but this banner is fully on-chain. So it's 100% on-chain. It's like an on-chain ASCII generator. Um, so it looks just like all my other pieces. But there's an interesting component of it, which is that there are six legions across MevArmy. And that means that, uh, and I did it so that's actually like completely equal distribution. So, you know, there's the same percentage are, are in each legion. Mm -hmm. So what that means is when people come and mint this, there are going to be like, you know, what, like 1,500 people or so that mint, you know, a searcher legion right, is what it's called. And, and there are going right. to be 1,500 people that own that NFT. But what I did is I made these NFTs community owned. And what that means is that if you own this, this banner and you have the ability to, to change components of it, so you can change like the color of the ASCII text, like the color of, of the image, or you can change like the actual, like remember we set out how ASCII is numbers and letters. You can change the numbers and letters with inside the image. However, if you change it, it changes for everybody else who owns the NFT. So it's sort of like this uh, community-owned thing where it doesn't. You can change it as many times as you want, but it's very likely that if you go change it to blue, I can then go immediately change it to red, and your your changes would be overwritten, and it mm. would change everybody's wallet. Everybody's NFT would change. So this is the project that I recently did, um, and it's you know it's kind of my experiment with composable NFTs, updatable NFTs, and on-chain NFTs. But what's interesting about it is it's sort of like now the beginning of this next phase of my like artistic journey where i want to start experimenting more with these on-chain nft aspects and and how do you make nfts updatable and change dynamically without relying on a centralized server because most of the time when nfts do change dynamically it's because they're relying on some centralized server but if you're you know there are a few fun tricks you can do to kind of get around that and, and make it you know decentralized but also dynamic so that's one area that i'm kind of experimenting with right now and the other thing that i'm experimenting with is also the, these magic illusions i'm not going to say much about that um because i want to mm. keep uh, you know under wraps for now and, and and the third thing is you know continuing to to build out you know this this mev army or xor community where i continue to do the, these these educational quests on chain and stuff like that and i think the next version of that that's kind of coming up in the next month or so is basically what you can do is because I know if you own an NFT on mainnet, but I want to token gate something on testnet, what I can do is I can basically just airdrop you your equivalent NFT on testnet and make it non-transferable. So now your ownership on a test network is locked in to what mm. it is on mainnet. And you can use your NFT on test network to do things, but it's more like a representation of your ownership of being a part of this community rather than like actually owning the main asset on, on the test network, right? Right. Um, and right. now what I'm going to do with this is 
essentially we're, we're going to do this scavenger hunt is like the first iteration. And basically it's like an on-chain token gated scavenger hunt. So you got to own these NFTs to be able to, to participate or at least participate in some components. And it's a, it's kind of like this, all this knowledge that people have been learning throughout these quests of like how to read Etherscan, how to interact with contracts at a low level, you know, maybe how to even code a little bit of solidity, all this stuff they're going to use to create like a 15 to 20 stage scavenger hunt to, you know, um, test out their knowledge on chain. And of course, you know, get a non-transferable NFT for doing that and, and, and whatnot. So basically a way to test out your knowledge and, and all this stuff. That's, that's really there. cool. So that's I, this other stuff that I'm experimenting with, but you know, every day I come up with new ideas and it's, you know, a never ending rabbit hole. I love it. I, I, you're the first person that's come on and actually shared like the experimentation that, that one is doing, but focusing on testnet. Um, I didn't, I really haven't thought about that as like an option to kind of keeping the love on ETH without needing to like adding new, add new networks or anything like that, but also kind of being cognizant of your collectors and not having them spend and waste a ton of money for, for no reason. I mean, not for no reason, but like for the sake of just having fun, if you could go through a quest and experience on testnet and then get the equivalent on mainnet, you know, as the reward as the outcome, it's, it's actually yeah. really, really smart. This has been great, uh, Michael. You, you're so knowledgeable on the space and everything that's happening. Before I let you go, where can we find you? Where can we find XOR and kind of shield away? Sure, yeah. So uh, probably the best is on Twitter. I have two accounts. I have my personal account, which is Blau Your Mind, at Blau Your Mind on Twitter. Uh, and then I have my XOR account, which is at XOR Arts, um, but it's with a zero. So X zero nice. Arts. And you know, when you go there, you can find like in my bio links to my website and my Discord and my collections and, and all that kind of stuff. So, nice. And I'll, and I'll put, I'll put stuff in the show notes, but what was the last thing? I was, I was going to say like, if you're, if you, for anyone out there listening who, who wants like a community and to, to learn more about like the technical aspects of crypto, my shill is, you know, come join the discord and, you know, we'd love to have you. Sick. This has been great, Michael. Till next time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks Adam. This was awesome. Congratulations on making it this far into the episode. You are a champ. And because of that, I want to say thank you by giving you a free participation NFT. You can claim yours today by visiting adamlevy.io forward slash NFT. Follow the steps on your screen. You'll be good to go. Also, depending on which platform you're listening on, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, share, favorite, etc. It really helps grow the platform and our reach online. And last but not least, I want to give some love and recognize one of our NFT sponsors who's helping make this episode a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3.